Well, in making our way through the work of our triune God in salvation, we considered last Lord's Day the work of the Father in salvation. We saw that the Father sent His Son. The Father imputed our sin to His Son. That the Father punished His Son. And that the Father raised and exalted His Son. Now before we move forward, I want to keep in the forefront of our minds a point that I made previously, and it really goes all the way back to the beginning of our study, chapter 3, that we need to keep in, in our minds any time we begin to study or think of or, or speak of the work of God with relationship to the three distinct persons of the Trinity. We, we learned in chapter 3, all the way back at the beginning, we would say this is foundational, fundamental. God is one. There are three persons, yet there is one God. The doctrine of inseparable operations asserts this, quote, the external works of the Trinity are performed indivisibly by each of the persons. Or we could say all of the persons. The works, external works of the Trinity are performed indivisibly by all of the persons. That means all of the persons work in all of the works of God as God works from Himself towards His creatures. Why? There's only one God. It's, that's the only way that it can be. But there's another doctrine that is called the doctrine of divine appropriations. And it asserts this, quote, God's works in creation may terminate on a distinct divine person, not because God's works are divided between the persons, but because God's works are best represented by the personal characteristics of a distinct divine person. So, the work or a work of God may terminate in a person. And that's why in the scriptures you'll often see a particular person named. But that is not to say that the other two persons are, are absent or, or not, not uh, participating. The point is to show a particular, as he says here, a, a personal characteristic of that divine person. And that's why that person is emphasized or that work is said to terminate in that person. This is why these doctrines, and that second one in particular, divine appropriations, this is why we can talk about the Father's work in salvation, or the Son's work in salvation, or the Spirit's work in salvation, even though we've already asserted back in chapter 42 that God is Savior. God, Father, Son, Spirit. One God is the Savior but it's not wrong to then study particular works as each of them is appropriated or assigned to a person as long as we keep in mind that this is the way that we speak to, to try to articulate the revelation we've been given. And as long as we keep in mind at all times, there is only one God. God is not divisible. God is one in being and essence. And I'm, I make that clear and I... I Repeat that, because if we aren't careful, we can become functional tritheists. 
or, or, or verbal tritheus. In, in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk, someone would say, you, you are talking about three gods. Now, we might not mean to be, but in the way we speak, if we're not careful, we might sound that way. We might speak as though there were three wills in God, as if the Father has one will, the Son has another will, and the Spirit has yet another will. Well, that, that cannot be. There's only one God. There's only one will in God because there's only one God. Now, this is perhaps made more confusing, or maybe a better word would be mysterious to us, when we begin to talk about the work of the Son, the Son of God, because the Son of God took to Himself the nature of a man. So following the incarnation, He is not merely the one God. He is God, and yet He is also true man. Two distinct natures, and yet still one person, the divine Son. God and man. Listen to how our confession states this, and if you, if you wanted to follow along in the hymnal, it's on page 674. Our confession in chapter 8 describing Christ the mediator says this, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world. One substance with Him who made the world. Same God who upholdeth and governeth all things He hath made did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, and yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And then in chapter 8, paragraph 7, we read these words. Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures. The divine nature works. The human nature works. In the mediation, as mediator, following the incarnation, He works according to both natures. By each nature, doing what is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So as Christ performs the work of mediation... Because he has two natures, the human nature, the divine nature, one person, as he performs the work of mediation, each nature does what is proper to itself. So the divine nature does divine things. The human nature does human things. The divine nature of, the, of Christ is not limited by human limitations. And the human nature of Christ is not elevated beyond human limitations. The human nature is, has all the common infirmities of the human nature. The divine nature retains all of the glories and, and uh, 
majesty of the divine nature. And so as the divine nature does divine things, not being limited by human limitations, it's the same divine nature shared by the Father and the Spirit. It's not another God. Same God. The divine nature of Christ is the one divine nature shared between the three persons. At the same time, because of the doctrine of divine appropriations that we described earlier, it isn't wrong to attribute some works specifically to the eternal Son because that work reveals some personal characteristic of the Son. Nor is it erroneous to speak of some work of the eternal Son using the language that really refers only to His human nature. Classic examples are, if they would have known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Hello, you cannot crucify the Lord of glory. You can't nail God to a cross. But because He's two natures in one person, inseparably joined together, that language is not erroneous. It's it's acceptable language. And we would also add, the Bible does this. This is where we get this doctrine from. Another example is when we we read uh, this morning from Acts chapter 20 that the overseers are to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Hello, God does not have blood. How can we say that God obtained the church with his own blood? Because God, the Son, took to himself the nature of a man and that human nature did pour out his blood to purchase the church. That language is acceptable is what we're saying because the Bible does that. As long as we keep in mind there is one God, three distinct persons, and in Christ, in the the person of the Son, uh, or in Christ there is two natures, one person. Now if nothing else, hopefully those introductory words will teach us that we ought to be very slow in how we speak about God. And we ought not to be rash with our words. And we ought not to be quick to make statements that try to pull God down and make Him really uh, close and buddy-buddy and with us as if He were like one of us. He's not like us. So we need to speak properly about God and the mysteries of the Holy Trinity. Now all that being said, let's look at chapter 44. The Son's Work of Salvation, part 1. Having considered the saving work of God and with special emphasis on the work of the Father, we will now consider the saving work of God the Son. As we study this subject in the next few chapters, we will see, number one, the essentiality of the Son's work. Two, the Son's willingness to fulfill the plan designed by the Father before the foundation of the world. And three, the uniqueness of the Son's person and work. He is the only name by which we must be saved, Acts 4. Now, just a a case in point here about what I just said. When we read of, quote, the Son's willingness to fulfill the plan designed by the Father before the foundation of the world, we must at least recognize that that is language meant to articulate something we cannot comprehend. It was God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who designed the plan of our salvation. And it was God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who fulfilled that plan. We, we, we cannot let our minds imagine that somehow the Son came into the presence of the Father at some point in eternity and said, 
what are you working on there? Can I get in on that? And then they began to work together and, and the, the son's unknowing will was brought into conformity with the father's predetermining will and then they began to work together. No, there's only one God. Only one will. The language that we use of the father and the son and their interaction with one another and making a covenant with one another, that is all language uh, that we call anthropomorphism. It's using human pictures and ideas to try to articulate something beyond our comprehension that God has done for us in our salvation. If we're not careful, we can become functional tritheists. We will begin talking as if there were three gods and there's only one God. So the first heading is the Son, our Savior. And you can turn with me to Luke chapter 1 as we begin to consider some of the names that are ascribed to the Son. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So here, the still yet unborn child of the Virgin Mary is referred to as a horn of salvation. A horn of salvation. Now, notice what he says. This comes from the Greek word keros, which literally means horn. In the animal kingdom, the horn is a means of both defense and attack. Thus, it was often used figuratively in the Old Testament to denote power and strength. The salvation of fallen man is beyond the power of everyone but God. Christ, as God, possesses more than the required strength to secure and to preserve our salvation. So he is called a horn of salvation. All right, let's turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. Verse 14, or 42 rather, sorry, John 4, 42. Speaking of Jesus, who has at this point visited and ministered to the people of Samaria, it says, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard our, for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Speaking of the man Jesus that had just sat at the well, had spoken with this woman, then they had gone to him, he had ministered to them, they say he's the Savior of the world. Now turn to the back of your Bible, 1 first, first John chapter 4, verse 14. 1 John 4, 14, same author. He says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. He says this is from the Greek word soter, and the word can be translated as deliverer or rescuer. It would be very wrong to take this title as an argument for universalism, the Savior of the world. He's not saying that Christ saves every single individual. 
Rather, it teaches us that Christ's saving work is not limited to an ethnic group or geographical area. It is global in its effectiveness. So we could also say that the entire created cosmos is going to be ultimately redeemed because of the work of Christ. He's the Savior of the cosmos, or cosmos, the world. There is one Savior, and as we've already seen, the Bible is very clear, God is that Savior. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, in human flesh, referred to as the Savior. Not a Savior, not one of three Saviors, but the only singular Savior. Alright, Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6. Speaking of God, our Savior, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus Christ our Savior. Literally, this means, reading the note there, the Savior of us. Jesus Christ, the Savior of us. The importance of this small possessive pronoun cannot be overemphasized. At least two truths are communicated. First, the Son is the one who saves, and we are the ones who are saved. Salvation is His work, and we are the recipients of it. Second, He is not the Savior of all, but of those who believe. We embrace Him. We must embrace Him and receive His salvation personally and individually. He must be our Savior. He is the Savior of us, our personal Savior. That's Titus 3, 5, and 6. All right, let's work our way still further backwards to Romans 11. Verses 26 and 27. Romans 11, 26 and 27. And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The word here, deliverer, is translated from the Greek verb ruomai, which is related to the verb eruo, which literally means to drag. So he says the idea communicated here is that of dragging someone from danger and thereby rescuing or saving them. In the New Testament, the Son of God is described as the one who rescues us from the wrath to come, rescues us from our body of death, and rescues us from the every evil deed. As both God and man, the Son is uniquely qualified to deliver His people. So as it relates to names or titles, the Son of God is referred to, just in these few references, as the horn of salvation, the Savior of the world, our Savior, and the Deliverer. And it's always important when we note those definite articles. The Deliverer. The Bible, from the very beginning, has been talking about one, a Savior, the Seed, the Deliverer, the Redeemer. One is coming. 
throughout Isaiah, you see those references where he says, there is no God but me. There, there's no other. I'm the only one. Over and over and over. And then we get to the New Testament and we, and we see that it refers to Jesus Christ as that one singular Savior. All right, now let's turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And the question that we're asking from verses 14 to 21 is, what does this text tell us about the saving purpose of the Son's incarnation and earthly ministry? So, and this is uh, going to be quoting from Isaiah 61, Luke 4, 14 to 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Several things we can learn about the saving work of the Son. First, that it was prophesied from ancient times. He reads from the prophet Isaiah, written probably some six or seven hundred years prior to Christ's birth. That This was not something that had never been mentioned before. It was foretold and planned. We also see here that His work would be carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that his ministry was one of preaching the gospel and liberating men from the tyranny of sin. And we see that the man Christ Jesus was not ashamed to take these words and apply them to himself. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Everything we're seeing here, he said, he said, it's me. It's being fulfilled. It is fulfilled the note there says that the word anointed comes from the Greek word creo and the Hebrew verb mashach, which, from which the title Messiah is derived, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the priests and kings were anointed with oil as a sign of their divine appointment and commission. The Holy Spirit anointed the Son as the Messiah who would both proclaim and accomplish the salvation of God's people. And again, we ask, why would the Holy Spirit have to come and anoint and empower Him for His work if He's God? And the answer is because He's man. The two natures were not mixed. They were not, they were not confused. There was no blurring of the lines. It wasn't as though the divine nature was somehow pumping into the human nature these powers. No, what He did, He did as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Alright, let's turn to Luke chapter 5 now. Just one Maybe just one page over. The question here, this is number three, according to the following text from the Gospel of Luke, what did Jesus teach regarding His mission? 
Why did the Son of God take on flesh and dwell among men? So here we're looking at Christ's own words about Himself. Luke 5, 31 and 32, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So there He says, it's from His own mouth, that He came for the purpose of calling sinners to repentance. Jesus is not teaching that there are two groups of people in the world, sinners who need salvation and the righteous who need nothing. He's simply stating the purpose of His mission, the salvation of the sinners. The great problem of the Pharisees and their scribes was that they did not recognize that they were also sinners in need of a physician. And just a picture of physician, a doctor, lets us know that he's, he's saying, I came for the purpose of finding those who are in need of healing and giving that healing. That's why he came. He understood that. He had that purpose. Luke chapter 19. Let's turn over there. Luke 19.10. Christ is speaking again after the interaction with Zacchaeus. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Again, we have His own words, His own testimony to His mission. He came to, came for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. He, and here He calls Himself the Son of Man, the title of the prophesied one from Daniel 7. He came to find them and rescue them. And the note says, to fully understand this statement, it is important to consider the entire context. Jesus is being criticized for entering the house of an infamous sinner named Zacchaeus. He's saying, That's, this is what I came to do. I came to find the sinners. There might even be some, a little bit of dramatic irony here when we think about the fact that Zacchaeus climbed this tree to see Christ. By the end of the interaction, he says, I came to seek and save you. Whether you climb the tree or not, I was going to find you because that's just why I came to seek and to save the lost. It was His purpose. So we see from the mouth of Jesus Christ Himself that His intention was to do what had been purposed from eternity, namely to save sinners. Again, there was only ever one Savior promised. That Savior is God. Christ comes along and says, I'm Him and I've come to do what has been prophesied in your salvation. Let's turn now backwards to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15, we have three parables, and I'm just going to read straight through them with just a line or two of comment. But we're, again, we're looking for what these parables teach about His willingness to save. So Luke 15, and we'll just read the whole chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons 
who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property with reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put, on a, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we see in the first parable, one out of a hundred is lost, and it is sought after. The second parable, one out of ten is lost and is sought after. And the third parable, one out of two, and him being the, the very son of the father, is lost and he's found. In each instance, finding what was lost is the main goal. And in each instance, celebration results when the lost item or person is found. And this reminds us of the joy that sweeps through heaven whenever a sinner is saved. One sinner, when one is found. If you're not a Christian, even if it were only one person in this room tonight who was saved, 
who would say, I'm, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to become a Christian. If one person out of this room did that, all of heaven would erupt with rejoicing. One sinner. And this, of course, matches what we've already seen in weeks past with, regards, with regard to God's desire and His disposition to save. Heaven rejoices when sinners are saved. Why? Because that is the desire of God. That's what God is doing. When, when Christ tells us to pray that the will of God will be done on earth just as it is in heaven, that lets us know that heaven is a place where God's will, God's desires, God's entire disposition towards everything has free reign and rule and encompasses everything that's there. So when we say that the, when we, or we read that the angels rejoice, there's rejoicing in heaven, that's because God's desire has been fulfilled. It has been pleased. It made manifest on earth. And what we're seeing is that is applied to the Son, the Lord Jesus. The note says in each of these illustrations, the emphasis is not on the worth of the one being saved, but on the love of the one who is saving. The value of one sheep is minuscule in comparison to 100. A lost coin is often not worth the time and energy required to find it. And the young prodigal was not deserving of the father's affections or the honor he bestowed upon him. In a similar manner, the son was willing to make the greatest sacrifice and pay the highest price, not because of our worth or merit, but because of his great love with which he determined to love us. Again, He came to seek and to save the lost. We cannot place a value on what He has already, already determined is worthy of His seeking and His finding and His saving. Alright, let's turn now to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 verses 10 and 11. Again, we're, we're answering the question, what was the purpose of the, the coming of the Son? John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, he says, the thief comes only to, to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we see that it was abundant life that the Son of God had in mind for His people. I came for this purpose, life, abundant life. He knew that we were languishing, dead in our sins, that we had no life, and He came to rescue us. We see there that He laid down His life so that we could have life. The note says that the thief is likely a reference to the false prophets, false messiahs, and hypocritical religious leaders who appeared in Israel before the coming of the true Christ. Unlike them, Christ proved the integrity of His mission and His willingness to save by His great sacrifice on behalf of His people. He lays down His life. How, what, what, what greater testimony do we need in order to truly believe that the desire of the Son was to save sinners than that He gave His life in order to do it? So the Son came and He took to Himself the nature of a man so that He could die that He could give that human life so that His people would receive everlasting life through Him. And we see that in those words, I came that. 
I came for this purpose. It's why I'm here. That's Christ's own words. The second heading in this chapter is the uniqueness of the Son's saving work. The uniqueness of the Son's saving work. One of the most important and scandalous claims of the Christian faith is that Jesus is not just a Savior. He's the Savior. The Scriptures unequivocally state that outside of Christ and His redeeming work on Calvary, there is no salvation. The Old Testament saints believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. However, such pardon could be bestowed and such righteousness accredited only because one day Christ would come and atone for their sins. The New Testament saints and all those after them who believe are saved in the same manner through the atoning death of Christ and faith in the promise that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Alright, so let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're seeing the uniqueness of the Son's saving work. Or we could say the exclusivity of the Son's saving work. Acts chapter 5 verse 31. It says, God exalted Him, that is from verse 30, Jesus, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him, at His right hand as leader and Savior or prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So the question is, what means has God appointed through which man can be saved? Well, the answer is here, He has exalted Christ. He's raised up Jesus and seated Him as leader and Savior to give repentance. The appointed means is the risen Christ who has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high where He rules now with the supreme aim of giving salvation to men. I'll read the note here. He says, Repentance and faith cannot remove the guilt of sin unless the demands of God's justice against the sinner are satisfied. God can grant forgiveness of sin to those who repent and believe only because Christ has atoned for their sin on Calvary. Thus, it is only through Christ's person and work that we can be saved. Only through Christ. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we could, if we wanted to, we could take that, that phrase destined us and we could put it later on in the verse as well. God has not destined us for wrath, but He has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we see that the salvation of God is found only through Jesus Christ the Son. It's a part of God's eternal decree. How will they be saved? By what means? Through the Son. And only through the Son. The word destined comes from the Greek word tithemi, which literally means to place, set, or lay. Figuratively, it means to set, fix, appoint, or determine. God has determined that salvation be found in Christ and His atoning work on the cross. Men may try to earn their salvation by many different methods, but God has appointed only one way, 
the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, number two says God has determined or appointed the Son as Savior. And it's important to understand that this appointment belongs exclusively to the Son. I'll read these texts. We won't turn to, to all, all of these. I'll just read them and give a little, a little bit of comment. When he says that this salvation belongs exclusively to the Son, again, he's not saying that the salvation, the work of salvation belongs to the Son to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit, as if the Father and the Spirit remained in heaven and they're cheering on the Son as He goes to do work and they're, they're excited when He does a good job. But the salvation, again, is the work of the one God. Salvation is of God, but it's found through the work performed by the incarnate Son, exclusively through the work of the Son. Listen to these verses, you know them. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive. No other way. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one else, no other name besides the name of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he says there the word mediator comes from the Greek word mesites, which denotes a mediator or arbitrator, someone who brings two adverse or opposing parties together in peace and agreement. How many mediators are there? Only one. How many ways are there to be saved? Only one. It's pretty clear. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Apart from the Son, there's no salvation. If we put all these texts together just back to back, no one comes to the Father except through the Son. There's no other name except the name of Christ. There's no other mediator besides Christ Jesus. Eternal life is found when a person finds the Son of God. Period. Number three, the Scriptures unequivocally state that apart from Christ and His redeeming work on Calvary, there is no salvation. This truth has tremendous implications for all men in that the eternal destiny of all is dependent upon how they respond to Christ. What warning is given in the following texts to those who neglect the salvation that God has offered through His Son? Let's look at John chapter 3. These are the warnings. You hear all of this, you say, I think I'll find another way, or... I hear what you're saying. I understand it's exclusive. I just don't think that's for me. These are the warnings to people in that position. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now the note here is important. Listen to what he says. This does not mean that those, hear, that those who hear the gospel and do not immediately believe are condemned to irreversible judgment. Rather, it means that those who continue to walk in a hardened state of unbelief will be condemned 
Now, don't read that note and say, okay, then I'm good. I hear. He says, I don't have to believe immediately, so maybe I'll put it off until next week, next Lord's Day. Maybe I'll put it off until I'm 12 or I'm 20, or maybe I'll, I'll enjoy my life until I'm in my 30s or my 40s, and then I'll believe, because Mr. Washer said I don't have to believe right this minute. Don't, don't believe that. Don't think that way. The Scripture also says today is the day of salvation. If you hear and you purposefully say, I'm not going to believe that, that's not what's happening. That's not what he's describing. Those who continue in unbelief are condemned. Why is that? Because as the text says, they're condemned already. We come into the world condemned. That's our natural condition. We don't have to do anything to be condemned. We come into the world condemned. Without faith in Jesus Christ, you remain in that natural state which is dead in sin and condemned by God. There's only one way. You say, I'm not going that way. You're condemned already. The, the judgment day will merely be the manifestation of that. The judgment day is not the day God's going to decide. You're already condemned. It's already decided. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We'll stop the reading there. He says, The author of, the he of Hebrews is making a comparison between those who reject the law that was mediated by angels and those who reject the salvation mediated by God's Son. If the rejection of God's law brought punishment, how much more the rejection of God's Son? When he asks in that text, how shall we escape? The answer is, you will not escape. That's, that's the whole point. When they broke the law, when they rejected the law mediated by angels, they did not escape. Every disobedience received its just retribution. Now, which is greater? The law of God written on tablets of stone mediated by angels to men or the fullness of the revelation of God in the man Christ Jesus? We'd say surely Christ is greater than the law. Therefore, to hear of this Christ, to know of this Christ and reject Him, there's no escape. That, that will not go unpunished. We, we often think that the coming of Christ has softened God so that the punishments are not quite so severe as they were under the law. No, the punishment now is rejection of the clear manifestation of the per personal work of Christ. That's, that's a far greater uh, disobedience and crime than just breaking the commandments of God revealed at Sinai. There, there is no escape. Alright, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll finish here. Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God making a very similar point that he made in the other passage. And, and we, we will often point out that the, sort of the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is greater than all of these, of these old covenant types and shadows. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the tabernacle and the temple. That's the point. Christ is greater. What he's saying is the judgment for rejecting Christ is also greater. That has also been amplified because you're rejecting the very Son of God. Now the note here again is important. Verse 26 says... Verse 26 is not teaching that all but those who have attained sinless perfection are condemned finally to judgment. Where it says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What he's saying is, he's not saying if you sin one time after you hear, well then you're, you're lost forever. He's not saying that. If that were the case, he says, no one would be saved because even the most mature believer will struggle with temptation and sin. The phrase, go on sinning willfully or deliberately, is a reference to a continual state of hardened unbelief with regard to the gospel. It is a settled or permanent rejection of Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But here's the warning. What will happen to those who reject Christ. They hear and they say, no, thank you. From the text, judgment, a fury of fire, the vengeance of God. It's a very serious thing. Though this is a fearful thought, as we've seen, God has not left us without a Savior. God is the Savior of men. The Father desires to save sinners. The Son desires and works to save sinners. There is no way to be saved outside of Christ. But that doesn't mean there's no way at all. That means we must go after the one way. Seek the one way. We must make use of the Savior that God has provided in His Son. He, he has, yes, exclusivized it. But He's made it so very clear and simple. He's even told us that He exclusivized it. He's let us know there's only one way. And He said, here it is, here it is, here, or here He is, here He is, here He is, here He is. Come here, come here, come here. Flashing lights, arrows, signs, pointing everything, drawing our attention to Christ. Drawing your attention to Christ. God has not left us wandering in the dark. He's made Himself known and He's given us His Son. If you're not a Christian, God says, there's one way, here He is. Throw yourself at the feet of Christ and be saved. And God says, everyone who does that is saved. In an instant and forever. Let's pray together.